Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Anyway, Advent is actually the beginning of our Christian year, and I know it's the end of the normal calendar year, but today, this is actually week two in the liturgical year, and because, of course, we want to start our Christian year and our religious year together by preparing ourselves for the arrival of Christ. That's the start of the story, not the end of our story. And so during Advent, you'll see us wearing these clerical stoles while we teach. This is simply part of how we bring religious imagery into our worship together. And it's part of how we remind ourselves that right now we are in a season of waiting. And so during Christmas, you'll, of course, you'll see decorations around the room, a little garland and lights. You'll see blue on the stage until Christmas Eve as we teach. And then on Christmas Eve, this stole will turn to white. And that will remind us that our waiting has reached its culmination in the arrival of the Christ. And so we're really hopeful that these little touches that we bring into the service, these parts of the larger Christian tradition that we incorporate, help to invite you into an experience of Advent this year. And hopefully that adds to it. Now, all of that also means that our Advent campaign is in swing. Scott already gave us one picture of one of the projects that we're supporting, but just quickly another reminder that this year we are providing new post-secondary scholarships for young moms finishing their high school. We're investing in local agencies, both in Kensington, here, and in Inglewood. We're gathering resources for an entire year of benevolent work that we do throughout the community for those in need. And finally, we are raising another round of funds for our refugee resettlement efforts here in the city. All of the details are available at commons.church advent. And so again, we thank you for including commons, both this campaign and our regular work in your Christmas generosity. We really don't take that for granted. So thanks. Now, last week, Bobby launched us into Advent. And if you want to backtrack and listen to that again, you can always go to our website if you missed anything. If you head to commons.church, there's a new button at the top of the page that says watch online, and that will take you directly to all of the latest teaching from both of our parishes. Uh, We redesigned that page this fall to make it easier to find the content either from Kensington or Inglewood. And also, we have just launched in the last couple weeks a new Inglewood Parish podcast feed that just includes the content here from this parish. And so you can find the links at commons.church church. You can subscribe to that and that will make it easier to track along. But today is Advent and it's December and Christmas is coming and that means it's the time of year to revisit old stories. And there's something kind of beautiful in that, isn't there? Because this is the time of year where we embrace tradition and we celebrate old habits and we long for the ways things were when we were kids. And yet, at the same time, it also, if we get too caught up in that nostalgia, threatens to disarm Advent and turn it into a very neutered story. One that's cute and comfortable and potentially non-threatening, instead of this really remarkable, incredibly political, shockingly subversive tale that we call Christmas. And so this year, we have titled our Advent series, Unexpected precisely because we want to try to uncover a sense of second naivete as we read some of these ancient stories. 
And we want to try to read as if for the first time and be surprised by what we uncover in some of these tales. And in particular, what we're trying to do in this series is take four images from Jesus' life and look at the unexpected ways that his arrival transforms the expectations or the interpretations and actually sometimes even the meanings that Christians apply to the Hebrew scriptures that undergird these stories. And so last week, we looked at Mary's Magnificat, set against the words of Hannah from 1 Samuel. Today, we're going to look at the birth narratives compared to the text of Isaiah where they draw their inspiration from. Uh, Next week, we're going to look at the way that Jesus uses the scroll of Isaiah to announce his ministry to the world when he goes public in Luke 4. And then finally, we've got Jesus and his family and their flight into Egypt set alongside a parallel from the prophet Hosea. And in each of these stories, what we're trying to do is look for something unexpected in our reading. Uh, Facebook has this thing right now where it resurfaces old posts from this day in a previous year. I'm sure you've seen this before if you're on Facebook. As all of you know, I'm sure my son is five years old right now, and we have enough content now where we are constantly being surprised and amused by stories that show up, stories that we have already completely forgotten about. And yet, I will spare you the stories today, although I promise I will have some Eaton stories for you next week before Christmas. But this is kind of the thing with Advent. It's the time when we tell old stories. And we tell them all over again, and we expect them to surprise us regardless of how many times we've heard them before. And so today is about birth narratives. In some sense, this is the most Christmassy of Christmas messages, but we want to start by reading from the gospel according to Luke. So this is chapter 1, starting in verse 26, and I'm going to read through to 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. I like the way one translator puts it here. Grace to you who is full of grace, for surely God is near to you. But Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David so that he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so that the Holy One to be born to you will be called the Son of God. And this is where the writer Matthew adds a direct quote from Isaiah, which says, The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. But Luke continues, Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. For she who was said to be unable to conceive is now in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. 
And here she gets the last word. She says, may your word to me be fulfilled. And the angel left her. Let's pray. And then we'll dive into this together. O God of eternal love, master of glorious, simple, unexpected gifts, today marks the beginning of our waiting time, our anticipation of the great festival in honor of your decision to save the world. And so we cast aside now our feverish pace and we open our pressured lives to the first sounds of gentle promise. Help us to be quiet enough to hear your voice and eager enough to catch every word of grace where we tread on familiar territory and where we read stories we have heard perhaps a thousand times before. May we this year come to Christmas with new imagination and fresh eyes and open hearts trusting that you might meet us here again for the very first time. In the gentle name of the Christ we await, we pray. Amen. Okay. Today we have an excursus into source-critical theory, war on the horizon, behold this young woman, and some old stories made new. But... We also have a story that, let's be honest, is pretty common fodder for this time of year. And obviously, we have the surprise birth of a child to a virgin, which, to be fair, is quite unexpected. But in terms of stories that we've heard before, and in terms of stories that might seem to surprise us, there is very little new here to mine. And yet, one of the most fascinating parts of both Luke and Matthew when it comes to Christmas is the ways in which they are taking very ancient stories, uh, very familiar stories to them, uh, stories that perhaps seemed very unlikely to be surprising to their audiences, and they made them new all over again. And so part of what we want to do today is to go back and to look at Isaiah 7, a passage that is often brought out at Christmas and read through the lens of the Gospels, a passage that serves as the basis for the birth stories in the Gospels. And we want to try to gather up some of the original context for the most ancient version of this story. And in doing that, our hope is that we can begin to see the ways that Matthew and Luke are adding and transforming and leveraging what they find in some of their most ancient familiar stories to tell something very new and very surprising about God. So, we've read the story in Luke. We've heard the quote from Matthew. We want to look at the source material here in Isaiah. And to do that, we have to remember that Isaiah was likely written in chunks. Um, scholarship tended to see Isaiah in three parts for most of the 18th and 19th centuries. And that's because the first part of the book spends a lot of time talking about the coming fall of the Hebrew kingdoms. The second part is pretty gloomy and dark, and it talks a lot about being in exile. And the third part of the book talks about a very hopeful ending and looks forward to a restoration one day in the future. 
And so the thinking was for a long time that obviously this must have been three different writers writing and somebody put it all together. I mean, nobody can be gloomy and hopeful all at the same time. Except that people began to challenge that in the 20th century. Uh, Postmodernism came along and all of a sudden everyone was gloomy and hopeful all at the same time. And it's actually a really good example of how even scholars, sometimes particularly scholars, tend to read themselves into the text and their perspectives as they go. But what's happened is that modern scholarship still tends to divide Isaiah, but it does it in a different way. Because what we have realized is that all of us often hold very deep grief and almost ineffable joy together at the same time. And this is actually really important for us to remember as we enter into Advent. Because Advent itself is this mixture of hope for the future and longing for this present moment. Uh, Part of Advent, yes, absolutely is anticipating the joy of Christmas. Part of Advent is also becoming aware of our need for Christmas. It's about noticing the darkness around us as the days get shorter. It's about paying attention to our longing and waiting in the world. It's about internalizing our desperation for Christ to come to us again this year, this Christmas. And so Advent itself is about this paradox that's embedded in source-critical theories about Isaiah, and it's where the gospel writers draw their inspiration from, and that is kind of a fun, if nerdy, example of scholastic irony, but... Today we tend to see Isaiah not divided along these thematic lines, but along historical lines. And the reason for that is that at this point, the Hebrew people had been split into two separate kingdoms. And Isaiah 1 to 33 is largely talking about Assyria. And Assyria conquered the northern kingdom who kept the name Israel, Uh, They conquered the capital Samaria in 722 BCE and they held it for most of the 7th century. The second half of Isaiah, chapters 34 through to 66, are mostly talking about life in exile under the empire of Babylon. Now, Babylon came through, conquered Assyria in the 6th century, and then they took control of the southern kingdom called Judah, and they took their capital of Jerusalem in 586 BCE, to be precise. So what that means is there's more than a 100-year gap between the two halves of the book. And so because of that, there is a shift in tone between the threat of war on the horizon and the experience of more than a 100 years of exile now experienced by the people. But all of that means that when we go and we look at Isaiah 7, where Matthew and Luke are drawing their inspiration from, this is from what we sometimes call first Isaiah. It's the first half of the story. It's pre-being conquered. It's pre-going into exile. And the context here is the looming threat of a battle with Assyria on the horizon. And so... Some 700 years later, when Matthew writes, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us, this is where it comes from. 
Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord God's self will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject wrong and choose right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. So, who are these two dread kings? Well, what's happening here is a little bit Game of Thrones, so you're going to have to bear with me here. At this point, a man named Ahaz is the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. And he is watching Israel form an alliance with Aram to fight against Assyria. Now, Ahaz does not want to get involved in that battle. So Israel and Aram are looking at teaming up to attack Judah first. And their plan is to replace Ahaz and the line of David with a king who's more favorable to their objectives. And hopefully that will mean that Judah will get on board with their war against Assyria. Now, Isaiah says at one point that they want to place the son of Tabeel on the throne in Jerusalem. And what's interesting about that is we have no idea who Tabeel is. Uh, some scholars have noticed, though, that Tabeel looks a lot like the Aramaic phrase, God is good, but it seems to have been corrupted in a way. And so that seems to suggest that maybe the meaning is something more like not is good. And so what we have here is kind of a pun where God is good has been turned into good for nothing. And what that likely means here is that Isaiah isn't actually referring to a specific person at all, but to the general idea that all of the enemies of God who long for war, they are good for nothing. And I just think it's really fun when the Bible is kind of playful that way. But Ahaz is worried about this. He doesn't think that Judah can withstand an attack. In verse 2, he says that the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken, even as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. And so Ahaz is getting panicked. He is worried in particular about how much water they have inside the walls of Jerusalem. He's worried about what's going to happen if they have to close the gates and fortify the city to defend against an attack. And so Isaiah shows up. And he meets the king down at the aqueduct where the king is checking on the water supply into Egypt. And he says to him, listen, dude, chill out. Verse 4, he says, be careful, be calm, do not be afraid, do not lose heart. Yes, your enemies want to attack. They want to place some good-for-nothing king on your throne. But it will not take place. It will not happen. In fact, Isaiah says, Israel and Aram have no idea at what they are playing with. Because Assyria is far more powerful than they realize. And if they start a war, it will be their undoing. But Ahaz is still terrified. And he says to the prophet, I don't believe you. And so Isaiah says, okay, here's the deal. See this young woman over here? She will have a child and that child will grow up safe and strong here in Jerusalem. You might as well call him God with us because before that child is old enough to know right from wrong, those kings that you are so terrified of, their lands will be laid waste. Now, 
As I paraphrase Isaiah, you may have noticed a couple things there. Uh, first of all, I started with, see this young woman here. And that's because in Hebrew, there's an interjection. It's the word hine. It's a word that shows up a couple times in the Joseph narrative. But here, the consensus is that this means that Isaiah is telling Ahaz to behold a particular young woman who is standing in the room with them. Essentially, Isaiah confronts the king down at the aqueduct, out in public, tells the king to be calm. But Ahaz is still worried. And so right there in front of everyone, Isaiah picks a random woman standing nearby and says, look, this woman could have a son and name that kid God with us because that kid would barely be old enough to eat solid food before all of this is over. So stop worrying. Now, I have no idea what this young woman thought about all this. She's probably just thinking, don't drag me into this. I just came for a glass of water. Chill. But the second thing here is this reference to a young woman. You see, when Matthew quotes Isaiah, he uses the Greek term parthenos. Uh, that's the term that's used in the Septuagint Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, so it's not surprising he would use that word. But while parthenos is almost exclusively used for virgin, not always, uh, which is why Matthew and Luke go out of their way to explain that, yes, they really do mean virgin. The Hebrew alma that Isaiah uses uh, really just means a young woman or a woman of marriageable age. Now, she seems to be chosen at random here. Uh, we don't know anything about her. We don't know if she was married. We honestly don't know anything that happened to her or her son as the story unfolded. But in the context of Isaiah, that doesn't really matter. Because the emphasis isn't the spectacularness of the birth. The emphasis is the withness of God in the moment. Emmanuel. Now, that's very different for Luke and Matthew, and we'll get to them in a minute. But first, we have to see how this Emmanuel story plays out in Isaiah. Because if we flip forward a few verses, about a chapter, we're going to find Isaiah using this same language again. Except this time, he's diverting his attention from Judah to Israel. And where Isaiah had courage and comfort and support for Judah, he has some very harsh words for Israel here. He says in verse 8, Raise the war cry and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be crushed. Devise your strategy, it will come to nothing. Speak a word, it will not stand. For God is with us. And what's really interesting here is that the last time Isaiah used the phrase Immanuel, we translated it into a proper name, Emmanuel. And yet here, most translators switch it up and they go with a declaration, God is with us. And that's a problem for me. Because I think when we start arbitrarily deciding when the story is about God and when the story is about us, we risk reading what we want to into the text. And so I really like the way that Eugene Peterson has handled this passage 
because he lands with the final note here. When all is said and done, the last word is Emmanuel, which leaves us something more like this. This is my translation. All you oppressors who prepare for war, listen all of you far and near, plot all you want, nothing will come of it. All your angry words are empty. Because when all is said and done, the last word is Emmanuel, God with us. And you see, what happens now is that the us of God with us is not just us on our side. It's not just Judah. It's not just America or Canada or the West or the wealthy. The us is the us of all of humanity. It's all of us who are trampled underfoot by war. It's all of us who are oppressed when people lead with violence because for Isaiah, God is not for one side and against the other side. God is with all who suffer. Even if those who suffer, suffer because of God's people. You see, This is really what informs Isaiah's imagination of God. It's why Isaiah will have hope in exile. It's why deep grief and profound joy can exist within the same frame for Isaiah. Because God is with us particularly when we wait. Especially when we suffer. Particularly when we work and we live for peace and for justice. Now, With all of that in mind, not just this image of a virgin, but this full imagination of exactly what Emmanuel meant for the prophet Isaiah. You see how much more profound it is when you go back to the Gospels. And you see Matthew and Luke, who are steeped in all of this imagery, drawing from this moment here in Isaiah to tell something new about God. Because they're not just looking for a proof text to prove the virgin birth. They are looking at the virgin birth and realizing that Jesus speaks to something much, much bigger about God. The reminder that God has always been with us. That God has always been near to the oppressed. That God has always cared for those who suffer, but now, now God is literally with us. It's as if Matthew and Luke, they look at Jesus and they go, wait a minute, we know this story. This is our story. This is the story that we've believed for years. This is a story that we've told to our children. But now, now it's like that story has been put on steroids and it's bigger and it's better and it's even more beautiful than we remembered it. It's like the supernaturalness of Jesus' birth grabs their attention, but it's the withness of Jesus' birth that really opens their eyes to what God is doing here. Because God is here with us in a way that we always knew but we never saw coming like this. And maybe you recognize that there are moments in your story where you never saw God coming. Maybe you never expected to be back in church here again. Maybe you thought that that old story was dead and buried for you with nothing new to teach you and then all of a sudden you found yourself surprised by Jesus somewhere. 
Uh, Maybe you encountered grace somewhere in the world. In a gift, in a child, in a kind word that came from out of nowhere. And then all of a sudden you said to yourself, wait a minute, I know this story. I remember that story. I forgot that story. But now, now it's like I know it all over again. And remember, when Jesus arrives, the Jewish people, they have been subject to Assyria and then Babylon and then Persia and then Greece and now Rome. And for literally hundreds of years, the Jewish people have been desperately trying to hold on to this idea that God is with those who suffer. But now God is with them. And everything is even more beautiful than the prophet Isaiah imagined it would be. Because you see, the waiting and the grieving and the holding and the expecting and the forgetting and the remembering, all of that is just as important as the arrival and the celebration and the excitement and the joy of Christmas. It's why we sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel, shall come to thee, O Israel. Because if you and I, if we don't learn to hold deep grief and ineffable joy together in the same moment inside of us, we miss the moment because this moment was meant to move us forward into something new. Every year at Advent, I come back to one of my favorite quotes from Meister Eckhart who wrote in the 13th century and said, what good is it if Christ came to us once unless he continues to come to us today in our space and our time? And that right there, that is exactly what Matthew and Luke grab a hold of from Isaiah. They say to themselves, what good is it if Christ was with us? We need God with us now, here, today. And then they see Jesus. And their minds are blown. And immediately they jump at the chance to tell an old story which they've known for years, which becomes a new story in its retelling. And for them, old words take on new meaning and ancient images dance to new life and Isaiah's experience of God becomes alive and fresh and new and full of Christmas morning in its retelling here. And so maybe what you need this Christmas is to find a way to retell this story all over again. And to read it and to sit with it, to meditate on it, and allow it to speak to you in new ways about the God that you've always known. Maybe to notice the ways that you are waiting for something really important right now. To recognize the spaces where you're grieving over something very painful right now. 
to become aware of the spaces where you need God with you right now in this moment and then as Christ comes to you and inevitably, invariably shows up in the spaces where you least expect God to. Spaces like old sheds out back and stories that we have read and then forgotten. Spaces like churches where maybe we thought God had forgotten about as well. Christmas might begin to remind us about the importance of looking again and discovering the divine that always was with us, especially when we lost sight of it. May Christmas become unexpected for you this year. May you learn to look for God in surprising places. And as you do, may the divine appear not where you want, but exactly where you need God to be with you right now. Let's pray. God, for all the ways that we, like Matthew and Luke, have heard a story one too many times before, and forgotten the beauty and the depth and the meaning and the surprise of it, might we learn to look again. And might your coming to us in unexpected ways and unexpected places cause us to go back and look again at the stories that inform our view of the world. To notice the stories of our life, the spaces where you were near to us, you were with us even when we lost sight of you. And might that help us then to re-narrate our lives and the depth and the meaning and the beauty of your presence woven in and through every thread that we have experienced. God, as you kindle new life in old stories and that spark begins to fan into flame and by your spirit you are present to us helping us to come alive again in new ways. Might we then, this Christmas, share that spark and light and hope and love with those we encounter. Might our kindness and our generosity and our kind words remind people of stories they have forgotten. And in that, might the divine show up in our interactions in ways that we never saw coming. In the strong name of the one that we await, we pray. Amen.